Hello everyone, welcome to our casting crew Q&A. My name is Lena and today I have for you an interview with AJ, the writer behind Crown of Thorns. It's an honor to have you with us today, AJ. Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you land in fandom? How did you start writing fanfic? Um, that's kind of a long story, so I'll try to pare it down. Um, I first learned about fandom when I was about 13. I um, was big into Broadway, like Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera. So when my house first got internet access, I went looking um, online and found a forum, like the sort of place where you would just make a post and wait for other people to post in response. It worked kind of like Reddit. And it was a Phantom of the Opera forum. And um, there was a pair of sisters I met. Um, I was growing up on the East Coast um, in Pennsylvania, and they were in West Virginia. And they ran a paper fanzine, and they were looking for submissions of um, something called fan fiction. And I was really unfamiliar with that concept. So I asked them uh, what they meant by that. And I said, oh, you mean that little handwritten book I've been keeping ever since I first saw the musical and I've been writing like little persona poems, you know, from different characters' perspectives and short little like pieces of flash fiction. And they're like, yeah, that's fan fiction. You're already writing it. And so <laughs> I started submitting to their magazine. And for about two years or so, my first pieces, like in the like mid to late nineties where I was a teenager and they were coming out in a, one of the last paper fanzines that I really like know about now that I've talked to a lot of people. Um, mm. I'm sure there are still some out there because mostly they're done like print on demand now, but we're talking, this was like photocopies being made and sent out to like 40 or 50 people all over the world. So that was my first experience. And then Shortly after that, um, I started writing fan fiction for Sleepy Hollow and Beetlejuice, believe it or not, like some Tim Burton-based fandoms, and I discovered websites that hosted fan fiction. So um, I wrote some stuff for Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, and it was on some websites, and that was sort of how I started coasting in the direction of um, fan fiction as we know it now, because for sort of a, more of an intermediary period, like when I was in college and um, the first of my grad programs, LiveJournal was the place to be. That's where I landed when I was writing Lord of the Rings fan fiction and then Good Omens and everything else that came along. Um, and of course, um, eventually, um, as LiveJournal died down, um, the migration to Tumblr and AO3 as the major platforms, I kind of, I was a little bit later to follow. Um, but that's sort of like the trajectory of how I learned uh, what fan fiction was, the fact that I was actually already writing it and didn't know it. And once I knew what it was, um, I was very happy to keep producing it and have it appear, um, you know, in a number of different media. I've tried to, I've tried to shift and change as the central points for, you know, gathering and posting um, to make things available to readers. Right. So you mentioned just now that you found Good Omens while you were in college. I did. Um, so I was an undergrad and it was like my second to last year of college. Like, I think it was like late, late 2004. A, it was, it was in fact a college friend that handed it to me and I, I read it. It was like mid-November of 2004 and I read it in about, I think it was like under four hours. And wow. so late at night, I just I tried calling her to tell her what I thought. And I got her voicemail and I ended up rambling for about like 10 minutes straight about how much I loved it. And that was really just 
um, what touched it off because I think it was within a month that I wrote my first piece of Good Omens fic, which was, well, it's still available. It's on AO3 now, but at the time it was live journals. So I, uh, The Last Temptation of Crowley, and um, I just never stopped. <laughs> I never, never stopped writing it. Right. So you started on the Good Omens fandom, but in live journal. Yeah, and that's pretty much uh, where Good Omens fandom began as sort of a centralized online phenomenon. I mean, the book the book came out in 1990, obviously, and it's had a, a big fan following ever since. But really, as an online fandom, it only really kicked off about the earliest stories that I could find were from about maybe 2001, 2002, 2003. Wow. And it, it might have been in about 02 or 03 that the live journal community called uh, Lower Tadfield, like that was the hub for everything in Good Omens fandom at the time. That and the Yuletide archive and those earliest Good Omens stories, as far as I can see, were written as part of the Yuletide, um, you know, small, like, small and rare fandom exchange. But when this mm -hmm. live journal community came along, um, it sort of changed everything. It got the community, a lot of people joined it. It got very active. Um, I was writing starting from 2004, and there were a couple of writers who were about as prolific as I am that started writing like a couple years before I did, um, Daguerre and Louise Lux, because their stories were the first that I ever read, that and the couple of sort of one-off, like one-hit wonders that were in the, the mm. Yuletide archive. So um, Good Omens fandom was born on LiveJournal, more or less. Right. And is it like very different from the fandom as it is right now? Extremely, because um, even though it was a very active fandom that never really lost its momentum, like people would come and people would go, but it was on this just very steady, active, but you could pretty much read almost everything that existed. Like there wasn't, there wasn't so much thick or so many posts that you couldn't keep up and follow now uh that's impossible um <laughs> even even when i migrated onto tumblr in 2012 which was like a really active year for me on, on writing some cot installments even on tumblr you could go on the good omens tag and sort of you know if you missed a few days trying to keep up with posts on the tag you could actually catch up like at the weekend but that's absolutely unheard of now <laughs> of course yeah, that's. I imagine that's very different. I am uh, part of the new people that sort of came on the fandom with the show. I had been aware of the book for a few years before that. It was on my TBR, but I had I hadn't read it, and I did read it um, before watching the show because I was like, oh, I remember this book. It was in my in my list. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I do imagine that the fandom has changed a lot with the with the show and how they portray the characters in particular, I imagine. Yeah, very much so. Um, there's, there's a very distinct divide now that I've noticed between book content and show content. Um, right. and, like, and I sort of expected that that, that would be um, a consequence of, of, the, of a visual adaptation uh, finally coming along. Um, we did get that lovely radio BBC um, radio play adaptation in, was it 2014, I think? 
And um, even when that came out, it didn't cause any kind of divide in the kind of fic that was being produced, because I, I sort of get the sense, at least for, for my personal opinion, and also from what I get a sense for in the fandom and other people I've spoken to, the radio play deviated much less than uh, the TV adaptation did. So the arrival of the, the radio drama didn't cause like, this is radio-based fic and this is book-based fic. It sort of stayed um, more integrated, I think. Right, it stayed together. I do find, I, I haven't heard the radio drama, but I, I do find that the show is a lot more focused on Aziravel and Crowley's relationship than the book itself was. The book had them as characters, but it was more focused on them being a disaster at stopping the apocalypse. A combination of, of them being a disaster, but also showing moments of characterization and subtlety in their characterization, specifically in parts of the book where it's, you know, Crowley by himself, it is flat or Aziraphale alone in the bookshop or, you know, Crowley uh, going on some kind of errand by himself, like to speak to, um, to Shadwell. So you, you get, you get those little scenes where you slowly over the course of the book get, get really get the picture of what their relationship is like. But more importantly, I feel you get those scenes where their characterization is so, so clear cut and so subtle and so complex. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It adds to them a lot. And so what did you think when you heard there was a show coming? What did you think? Were you excited for it? Were you nervous? So that's kind of a funny thing to talk about because in 2012, when I arrived on Tumblr, there were rumors that a show would be coming out like very soon, like within, you know, like a couple years of 2012. And there was all this buzz and all these rumors, but nothing ever really materialized. It, those rumors just kind of sank and went quiet. So um, I sort of believed, actually, the whole fandom has been cynical about this, and by which I mean sort of the people who have been in it for a really long time, because there was also an earlier uh, proposal of a film, like in the 90s, I believe that was mm. supposed to star uh, Robin Williams and Johnny Depp as Aziraphale and Crowley. Wow. Um, and there was, a, there was a script, and uh, it never, it was never greenlit. In fact, I even remember, I think, reading somewhere that Terry Gilliam had been uh, proposed as a director. So there was that that never got off the ground. And this is all based on like what online research that I was able to do or what I was able to glean from conversations with other fans. But um, so we didn't, you know, that it seemed cursed. You know, there was the 90s, the film, that film didn't ever become anything. There was the rumors in 2012 that kind of just vanished off the radar. So when in 2018, it was announced that, yes, this is actually a thing. This is happening. I was, I was, I was suspicious again. I thought, okay, maybe third time's a charm or maybe <laughs> nothing will happen again, but it sounded a lot more official and a lot more serious. And, and that's um, what, that's how it, you know, how it, came around I guess that um we all believed it I mean for my part 
I was extremely happy with the radio um, adaptation. And it, for a visual adaptation, I always thought um, that animation would have been a really brilliant um, choice for a visual. I never really wanted um, a live action adaptation, like with actual actor, like, you know, voice acting in animation, I would have really liked to see that, but there's just, there's something about it in a live action that I, that I suspected that I wouldn't really enjoy that so much. And then when it finally came out and I did watch the series, I watched it one time through it. I just, um, it's not for me. It's not for you. Wasn't your thing. That's no. all right. I mean, there were a few small elements that I that I did enjoy actually, like um, a few of the castings. I thought the kids were beautifully cast. The them, um, I oh, thought yes. um, Mary Loquacious. That was a brilliant piece of casting. Oh, for um, sure. Even, you know, when I think about the horse persons, um, I thought that mm. was some pretty good casting too. Um, but my so my positive opinions have more to do with individual performances and casting choices than with the piece as a whole. Right, and you think that's probably influenced because you already knew the book and you had a very clear um, vision of what you thought of each character, or do you just that's, think it's just... that plays into it? I mean, having mm. lived with the book and the radio adaptation for so long, uh, but also maybe. <laughs> Just some of the the choices in the adaptation framework, I I felt maybe didn't maybe didn't show off, um, the the way the way that the book comes across the the sense the feel of it was a bit off for me. Right, it was it was different. Not every medium is for every person too. Um, so and having lived as you say with this book for so long. Here you've also even met with both uh, Mr. Gaiman and Sir Pratchett, right? Well, it was, you know, very brief encounters, relatively speaking. Um, in 2005, um, in I think it was September, there was a single week. I was living in Boston at the time because I had just graduated from college that year. They were both doing readings. Um, Terry was doing his reading first um, on the Harvard campus in, in like a really small library of one of the colleges. And then at the end of the week, Neil was reading at First Parish Church in Cambridge. So when I heard both of these events were going to be happening, me and a couple of friends from school, actually, who also had pretty much just graduated. Um, in fact, the friend who handed me the book in the first place, I said, okay, we, we're going to organize. We're going to, all of us going to try to get tickets to both of these events to see, you know, and whoever gets through first and can request the kick tickets. We had a, a group of four people. And I thank you. That was the max number of tickets maybe that you were allowed to request for any of oh, those wow. events. So um, I managed to snag the, I think the Terry Pratchett reading tickets and um, my friend got the first parish church tickets so between the two two of us two of the three right. of us we got we got the tickets sorted and um so at the beginning of the week i went to terry's went to terry's event and i had promised um some friends online on the lower tadfield community that if i was lucky enough to be called on during the q a at both events that i would ask neil and terry each the same question which related back to um, a blog post that Neil had made um, 
Maybe earlier that year or, you know, the year before, certainly within about two years of the, these readings happening, where Neil had alluded to a conversation between him and Terry, and he had sort of given the vague gist of their conversation, which was that they were talking about what Aziraphale and Crowley were doing these days, you know, where they were, what they were up to. Right. And of course, if you allude to something like that so vaguely, you're going to make the fandom curious. And so I promised that I would try to get called on. I would try to ask this question. At Terry's reading, I think it was a very near thing where I almost, you know, I was, we were getting down to the end of the time before he was going to be doing his signing. But I did, in fact, get called on and I asked Terry the question, uh, what, what, did you decide, you and Neil, what did you decide that they were doing on the South Downs? You know, we, there's, the fandom would really like to know. And Terry gave this long, evasive, meandering, eloquent, of course, because Terry was never anything but that, um, about how, you know, actually he talked a lot about the way that they had discussed writing a sequel, but, you know, and they just never decided maybe they weren't going to do it. And he didn't really answer my question. He ended up talking a bunch about past conversations they'd had rather than the conversation that I was trying to pinpoint. So that was, it was wonderful. I, I, I got him to sign my copy. And then at the end of that week, Neil's event was four times as large as far as the Terry's reading was actually very intimate, but Neil's event was huge. Like, I mean, it, that is a big, that is a, big church um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was, you know, probably several hundred people. Whereas at Terry's event, there were maybe 50 of us. So um, Neil did his reading and the Q&A opened and my friends and I were sitting and we were in the pews, like there weren't even chairs. Like this was Neil up on a podium in a church talking to all of us sitting down in the pews. And uh, I thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, I don't have a very high chance of, of trying to, to ask the same question here. But again, somehow, I don't know how I got that lucky. I did get called on and I asked Neil and Neil launched into a similar rambling answer like Terry that sort of talked about oh, we've been having conversations about this for a long time. You know, here's details of maybe a sequel we discussed at one point. And he came to the end of his version of this ramble and he paused and then said, "Um, but no, what we decided they were doing in the South Downs was sharing a cottage. And that was the last thing he said in answer to what I had asked. Right. And um, at the time, um, I mean, for for Laura Tadfield, to hear this, like, because I then, you know, I made a post reporting back because I promised I take my promises very seriously. Fandom is my community and my home uh, to a very large extent. And Mm -hmm. even in fact, one of the, one of the four friends that was there with me um, had a video camera and had videoed actually pretty much the the whole Q and a, however, they, they had posted the clip, I think to Laura Tadfield at one point, but then like the, the hosting service they used for the video clip, the clip was lost. And that is someone, they they went to a different college in Boston. So like they weren't at my school. I lost contact with them. And so did the other couple of friends. So that video clip, wherever it is, and I keep every once in a while trying to put out feelers and say, what happened to this live journal user? Um, do they even know that they're, you know, their hosting service? So the clip, the video clip that there was is gone but that's 
um, sort of, you know, I didn't, it's not like I had a long conversation with them. It's that I uh, went in with this sort of, you know, uh, mission that I was going to try to do this. I managed to do it. I got them to sign my books, but um, neither one of them was, um, you know, a, a a close friend or anything like that. It's just that I had this really extraordinarily lucky set of circumstances that they a were in Boston the same week giving readings and b that this curiosity in the fandom was near enough that I realized an opportunity and I took it and then you succeeded (laughs) yeah That's, that's incredible it was it felt it it was really it was a cool thing like it was definitely it's up there as far as my um and at the time i was not a very well known you know i mean i'm a i'm a poet I, like outside of fandom i'm a poet i'm an educator i've written some fiction and nonfiction essays so i'm like you know maybe like early mid career like with my i'm predominantly a poet but um i was a nobody so you know i mean <laughs> It it was it for me as being a story. I had just grad, graduated from college. It was very it was a special thing to happen, and the for the fandom, it was um, the joy that it brought to people was wonderful. Imagine, and is that from from that question that you decided to start Crown of Thorns, or was there anything it else was. that sparked it? So that was September of two thousand and five. I moved to the UK. Um, October, it was, it was a, a really nutty, um, because I had maybe two weeks after those readings to pack all my stuff and fly to the UK to start uh, my first graduate program. So I landed in the UK like early, early morning on October 1st, took a train from London up to York, got settled into my room, um, exhausted, like crashed for a few hours, woke up, forgot even where I was. And that evening, um, usually what I do, writing is very much a, a grounding mechanism for me. Um, I felt sort of stressed and out of my element. I decided I'd already been having conversations with friends and they're like, you should like turn that into a writing prompt. You should do something with that. It's really you know, awesome that you were able to sort of draw that out, tease that out of them. And I thought, oh, that's um, like really a wonderful it's a really wonderful idea. So that evening, I wrote A Better Place, which is the first, um, first chapter. First chapter, And the second chapter actually didn't come along for like, I think a few years after that, because I, I thought at the time I wrote A Better Place that it would make a good starting point for series, but it took me until someone in um, Yuletide, not Yuletide, Good Omens Holiday Exchange, wanted, it was the first uh, request for a Southdown story that I had seen um, since I wrote A Better Place. And I think the person who requested that had read A Better Place and thought they wanted more. And um, the people who run Good Omens Exchange, I'm pretty sure knew that I had written that and said, let's give this request to Iris Luthick. And so the story I wrote um, the walls, the wainscot, and the mouse for mm-hmm. that person in Good Omens Exchange uh, became the second chapter of CLT. And from there, I just never stopped. I, I had enough, I had the momentum I needed to turn it into a series. And it into a series, it did turn. Um, 
in fact, you wrote it across, was it like something like 10 years? So um, uh, if we, let's see, the first, first part appeared in 2005 and I completed it just last year. So 2005 to 2019. Um, oh, wow. And I wrapped it up about two months three months before the miniseries came out. So, I mean, that's more like 14 or 15 years that that work on that series um, was ongoing. Oh my God. And that's, yeah. that's wild. That is really wild um, because it's, you know, about two, 275,000 words. And usually, I'm a, I'm a quick writer. I usually finish a 300,000 word fandom project. Maybe it'll take me um, a year or sometimes two years, but like this, I really did, um, I don't know, I, I didn't ever, I, I hated the thought of ever leaving that because it, it meant so much to me. So I think the way I worked on it, I tried to make the work itself last as long as possible. And also I right. think the interior timeline of the story spans, the interior timeline of the story spans maybe I think 12 or 13 years itself. Yeah, um, yeah so the characters do grow within it. The, the interior timeline of the story spans 2005 to 2017, I believe. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if you finished it last year, at the beginning of the year or so, then it wasn't too much long after that that Lit approached you with the idea to make the Butrama then. So it was, it was a handful of, let me think, I finished it, I finished it in February on Valentine's Day. Uh, 20, 2019 Aww. Valentine's Day, I posted the last, and that was a deliberate choice on my part. It was always a love letter to the novel and to the fandom. So um, that felt appropriate. But I think that um, Literarian approached me with with the fact that that they were going to be doing a, a pod drama of it in uh, September. And um, that was bit of a, a light and a dark patch because in I've been getting progressively very ill over the course of last year starting in about April and I didn't know what was happening um, my medical you know didn't really know what was happening but in September it got so bad that I ended up being hospitalized and then um, a series of more intensive diagnostic tests were going on so I was kind of in this limbo when Literarian approached me and so it really cheered me up a lot. And, you know, within, I think, two or three weeks of, um, you know, saying, sure, like, I would, I would like to be involved um, in the production that right. I got, that I got my diagnosis of colon cancer. Um, and so I had a really rough fall and winter and, and surgery. And, you know, right. even about six or seven months out from the most intensive of it. And I mean, I'm still, I'm still recovering. I still have some like <laughs> really bad days, but it, it's been a pleasure to, to be able to watch it evolve and to be a consultant because anytime there's something about the text, um, you know, that people need clar clarification or want um, more background or I just, I get, you know, I get a lot of questions from all of you that, and I'm glad that I'm able to help with those. Um, I had some input on the voice casting, which was amazing. Um, so it was kind of remarkable that, that it 
came that it was presented to me uh, at a really really bad really bad time in my life and it it was something to now that I had finished the series normally I would use a writing project to haul myself through a really hard time I couldn't add to COT anymore because I was hardline I'm like it's finished this is the end point um actually the work's not really done so it in a way it's keeping the series going it's not really fully finished and that's um I didn't think I'd ever see that people there were a few attempts I think in like 2013, 14, there were a couple of people who did pot like a pod fic of maybe a few of the earlier chapters. Um, but a full a full pod fic or pod drama version just never happened until now. Of course. Well, I'm, I'm of course I'm sorry to hear about your illness, but I'm glad that at least the project is, you know, helping you along with it. It really is. And I like I should I should also say that I mean the surgery was very successful. They're they're very sure, at least for now, that I'm in remission, which is a good thing. Yeah, the right. hard days are more just that it's a like it's a really tough procedure to recover from. So it's um the getting rid of <laughs> getting rid of the cancer has produced like a new pro a new like difficulty. But um honestly I'm so grateful to um to the way fandom has helped me through this as well, because um, it's not the first time in about the last eight years or so that I've had something really, really hard happen. But I have to say this one took the cake. So to have <laughs> um, such a big, exciting thing happen, um, it was very timely. Well, I'm glad and congratulations on recovering then. Thank you. So I gather that you do listen to the Putrama then as it comes up? I do. I've listened up through um, 25. Uh, and I'm trying to parcel it out for myself. Um, I've been teaching this year. Um, I've been kind of like an adjunct at the college level for about nine or 10 years now. But I also have, for, through all of that time, worked a full-time job. Like I'm a, mm -hmm. in the medical field as an administrator with a kind of specialized function. Um, so my life is really busy at any given time. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of pacing myself. Um, mm -hmm. I want to make it, la I want to make it last as long as I can. And I'm also fitting it in around a lot of other, because even, even, even though I still feel not great, a lot of days, I'm still doing my full-time job from home and teaching online. So I, right. I have this interesting, interesting new challenges in, in time management, but I am listening. Great, and is it is it meeting your expectations, so to speak? I would say so. Yes, uh, the the aspect of the production that has uh, wowed me the most from um, the moment it started was the the music. Um, Nuiteri's soundtrack oh, yeah. is extraordinary, and I'm a. I mean, it. Uh, everyone's a big fan of music to a certain extent, but the role that music has played in my writing processes over time has been significant. And if you, if anyone had asked me, like if I could have one wish, um, having a soundtrack, a score based on this sprawling series, if I had gotten that alone, I would have been ecstatic. So to right. get a pod drama with a soundtrack, um, it's, you know, exceeded 
anything I would have expected. Right. So um, you've been writing. So you you said you're a, a published poet, yeah? Mm-hmm, that's right. And you've been writing in fandom for a few years now. So you had been writing before that. It seems. Um. The. F- The first writing I ever did was in fandom. So fandom is the reason I started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I've been writing in fandom. I mean, I'm, I turned 38 at the very end of last year. So I've been writing in fandom for over half my life. About. Wow. Like I'm, I'm not even, not even 40 yet. And it's been about half my life that I've been writing in fandom. Right. I mean, I didn't get, my first works didn't get published, published until 2005, actually. I had, um, I had two poems come out in a magazine called Strong Verse. And then uh, from there, I realized that, you know, my, actually my poetry uh, was probably the way forward as far as getting my, my work out there and my name out there. Uh, and since then, I mean, like my magazine and anthology credits, there are so many of them that it's really tough to rattle them off. But the as far as books, I had a poetry collection come out in 2010. And in 2014, those two early ones uh, were with a UK publisher called Flip Die Publishing. And then my third collection of poetry, which is much longer than those two early ones, came out just last year. Um, and I'm really fortunate it won um, it won a regional award best LGBTQ book so that was oh, wow. really Congrats. the biggest thanks it's the biggest honor uh, that one of my published works and I don't have a book of fiction out there I have some short stories and anthologies but mm-hmm. the way the way all of my time management and uh, my mental partitioning works out um, I, I focus on my poetry when it comes to the work published or even I'm starting to focus more on writing um, nonfiction essays now as well um, I, I'm kind of happiest when my fiction writing energies are focused on fandom because that's where it started um, the friendships and connections um, and support networks that I have found in fandom I don't think I could ever properly repay so that is what I do for my community online is write a lot of fiction that you know I don't earn anything from it no fan fiction writer earns it's right uh, it's for the love of it it's a gift a gift economy I've heard some people describe it um or uh, so like you know some some people read and write some people just um are there to be readers and cheer writers on. I hope that most writers in fandom are also readers because um, knowing the context in which your own fandom work exists and is socialized is very important, I think. Yeah, I I would say so. Yeah, I I would say so. Um, So um, how would you say it's different? Because you, you primarily write poetry for mm-hmm. publishing and then prose I would say for f- uh, fandom or do you ever write prose for yourself not even for publishing but not for fandom either I mean I do write I have written some prose that's gotten published I think I've had about mm. maybe 10 pieces of short fiction 
that have appeared very scattered over time, usually in anthologies or in like, I think two were in, in online magazines, um, maybe a couple were in print anthologies. Um, it's kind of, it's hard for me to track that without a list in front of me. I'm really good with like my website URLs and telling people where to find things on AO3. But when it comes, a, a lot of my work has been in print, although increasingly more of it is in online venues. And I edit for a magazine as well. I'm in the poetry department at Strange Horizons magazine. And wow. I have been since 2012 was a big year for me. Uh, and I, that's when I started there. Um, but it's not are you asking, you're asking if it's different writing prose in fandom versus the, the prose that I write for publications? I guess so, yeah. Not so much. Um, I would say, though, that the writing decisions I make as a poet also inform the decisions that I make when I'm writing prose. And actually, that haunts the prose work that I produce for like non-fandom publication, I think more, even more than it does my fandom work. Although I will fully admit that uh, my prose style is very, I feel it's very spare, that it's very uh, like, it's very bare bones sometimes, but my word choices, because I, I started writing my, the earliest fandom content I wrote at age 13 was those little persona poems that I described. So I started my mentality as a writer was I, you know, this is a very tightly crafted form. I have to think about my word choices. I have to think about how lines resonate and the, the, that methodology or that mindset that I, that I use in poetry does bleed does bleed into my prose a lot yeah okay that, that makes sense um so well we've been going for a while i have two final questions that i okay. want to ask everyone that comes through the podcast so um first of all is one that changes a little bit depending on what the person does for the podrama so you as the writer is there a character it could be um an original character or one of the main characters from actually Good Omens, but is there a character in the Crown of Thorns universe that you identify the most with? That's really tricky. Um, when I created Uriel as a, as a character, because I have in this universe, my versions, my original character versions of all four of the Archangels, come into play at various points, but Raphael and Uriel are uh, the biggest, uh, they have the biggest mm -hmm. role. They're sort of the, I guess you could argue they are the original characters, maybe aside from Mandy and Pippa or the Devis Pulsifer children, the girls that, yeah. um, when I created Uriel, I actually had created her in a story that I wrote in a different fandom because I needed... Oh. And I needed an archangel in the context. Um, it was kind of a supernatural, um, not supernatural as in the show, but it was definitely oh. a piece of uh, a ghost story, essentially, this, this work that I wrote in another fandom. And I needed an archangel to appear at the very end. And when I did my research, um, I'm Jewish. I'm very interested in um, just the lore surrounding angels. And so I was reading... Um, Christian ideas about what all the archangels do, what their specific jobs are, and, you know, 
impressions of what all the angels do according to Judaism. And the one thing that stuck out in my mind that I, I read somewhere that Uriel had dominion over the souls of men. Now, when I, I thought about that for the ghost story, she was a good choice. So I created Uriel for that story, but she appeared for maybe one page of it, like maybe only a few hundred words. And so when it came time in COT to start thinking about how am I going to shape the archangels, I thought, oh, I already have Uriel. I already know how I, how I think of her. And um, I identify strongly with her in that um, I don't let go of what I lose very easily, whether the person literally dies or is somehow taken away from my life or I need to walk away or... Um, even lost objects that mean a lot right. to me. Um, like the clip. Like the yes. clip from the interview with the... Yes. So I identify with her because that is her business um, within the universe of COT slash Good Omens for my purposes. She deals with the spirits left behind or that linger behind on Earth that... that have either have unfinished business or just don't want to leave. Um, whereas Azrael death has dominion over the ones that are very clear cut cases, you know, they're, they're gone. He, they encounter him and then they go on. So, um, feeling the weight of what I, of what I carry, of what, of what won't stop haunting me. I've kind of transferred that into the way that I that I wrote that I write her that I wrote her um because it's a weight on her um being stationed I have two of the archangels you know their jobs are in heaven but Raphael and Uriel are stationed on earth similarly to the way that Aziraphale and Crowley are mm -hmm. and her job just weighs on her terribly at times um and it in a way like definitely makes her as painfully human having gone as native as Aziraphale and Crowley have. Uh, so, but sh if I can't really talk about her without thinking about Raphael as well, because they have their own story that spans the mm -hmm. centuries that, that becomes uh, extremely relevant in the plot of COT. Um, so those two uh, are really, really dear to me, but so is Mandy. I mean, here's where, like, asking me to pick favorites <laughs> among, among my original characters is very right. hard. But Sorry. I will say that with, with Raphael and Uriel, um, their voice actors in the pod drama uh, are uh, in amazing. Uh, I, they cannot, are... I cannot get over how well they're being portrayed and I can't get over the fact that you know they're designed to be annoying I mean they are annoying <laughs> people like they have their good moments and they they both have a lot of character growth over the course of the series but yeah listening to it and listening to them I realized oh my god they're they're exactly as annoying as I as I hope they'd be and hearing their you know hearing them portrayed so accurately just drove home I'm like I'm sitting here I'm so irritated by my own characters that I, I can't really cope but that that's wonderful that that means that they're that they function properly yeah no I, I do find them incredible both the characters and the voice actors of course um and then a final question would be what is something you've learned during the project, both the writing of the original fic, but also 
your involvement with uh, the Bud Rama? Hmm. I mean, what I learned in the, the writing, I guess, is that, um, you know, a lot of people put pressure on fan writers and they'll say, why are you wasting your time writing so many thousands of words of fiction when you could be trying to write a book and, you know, uh, have a bestseller or whatever. But um, being able to have my work published and sometimes get paid for it, because when you're a poet, I mean, that's why most poets have other jobs, you know, being in academia or um, working, you know, whatever they have to survive. Um, writing for me is not about the profit and having a single project span so many years drove that point home, you know, and helped me to to answer those people when they ask me, why do you spend your time doing this when you could try to make so much money? Uh, the answer is that it's for myself and my own survival in a lot of ways, but also those stories, and actually the poems that I put out in the world too, I have felt so alone um, on a number of fronts in my life, but if I can help my readers feel less alone uh, with what I put out there, then that's where the value is. I, like, I don't even want to call it a payoff necessarily, yeah. but yeah. it there are ways in which it's vital to me. And I am aware that for some of my readers, you know, or a lot of my readers, it's, it's vital as well. So that's what I learned um, having because it was my longest running project. I've never even worked that long on one of my poetry collections. Um, as far as what I've learned being um, a consultant, because I, that's what I would call myself uh, on the Podvic project. Um, I've, I've been involved as a, you know, there to, kind of like a dramaturge in some <laughs> ways on a, dra on a like theater production or whatever. Um, not identical, but um, just, I'm not necessarily, I have directed a couple of stage productions in the past, usually like as part of grad school projects or whatever, but I don't like, I, I don't know what I would do if somebody put me in charge of an entire project <laughs> like this. I, um, I, I feel that um, a lot of the time, those of us who predominantly write you know, we're so focused on producing the words that need to be interpreted that I, you know, I don't, I'm glad to just sort of be on, you know, more in the background. Like I like working behind the scenes, I guess, is, is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I, I don't necessarily, because the words I produced, like in a way I'm already foregrounded enough. So just sort of being able to um, have involvement when it's most needed and help shore up things um, to make sure that the, the final recorded uh, episodes, chapters come out the, the way that they need to. Right. Well, that's, honestly, that's, that's beautiful. As I, I, I am also a fan fiction writer and I, I do feel what you're saying about just wanting to touch other people's lives, not just oh, everything's about the money and you could be writing your next best bestseller. Sometimes sometimes it's not about that, yeah. 
well, thank you for talking with us, AJ. Um, tell us, where, where can people find you online? Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, so if people want um, my fandom blog and... Hey, guys. The audio right at the end of the interview decided to play tricks on us, as you've just heard. So let me repeat to you AJ's online handles. You can find their fandom blog at irisbluefic.tumblr.com. That is I-R-I-S-B-L-E-U-F-I-C.tumblr.com. Their AO3 is the same, Iris Bluefic, and for their non-fandom writing presence, you can check out their Twitter at AJOdasso, that is A-J-O-D-A-S-S-O. And if you search either Iris Bluefic or their real published name, AJOdasso, their books will come up as well. All right, thank you very much. Thank you so much, have a great day. So, this was all we had for today. In two weeks, we'll be talking to Potpex, the narrator of Chrono Thorns, so keep your ears ready for that.